0: Greetings from Dubai. I'm coming at you from the World Government Summit this week in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, This is a conference dedicated to ideas and technologies to make government work more effectively. It's sort of a cross between TED Talks and Davos. You have people like Neil deGrasse Tyson discussing government's role in science research, fancy displays of drone technologies and virtual reality stations. Uh, But you also have the UN Deputy Secretary General Jan Eliasson discussing the SDGs and International superstars like Mary Robinson and Mohammed Yunus kind of keeping it real and maintaining a focus on harnessing these technologies and these ideas in the service of humanity at large. So it's been an interesting few days, and I have two interviews from the summit for you, which I think reflects the dual tracks of this conference. First up is Sarah Zaid, Princess Sarah Zaid, who is a longtime UN employee and humanitarian worker whose spouse is the Jordanian diplomat and royal and current UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Prince Zaid Rad al-Hussein. Uh, Sarah aid is spearheading efforts in the UN system and beyond to sharpen the international community's focus on providing maternal and reproductive health in humanitarian emergencies. Uh, up to now, this is not something that the international community has done very well for reasons, she explains. And she discusses quite candidly the very personal reason that she decided to take on this cause. Next up, I speak with Justin Hall Topping, a venture capitalist who is investing in nanotechnology in the clean energy space. We have a discussion about the potential of nanotechnology to revolutionize things like access to clean water and clean energy and what it will take to realize some of the very promising scientific discovery that is on the horizon. Like I said, two somewhat different issues, but all under the rubric of this conference, and both very interesting. Uh, If you are new to the podcast, welcome. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archives or get in touch with me. And now here is Princess Sarah Zaid. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Eslanyan from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: I didn't answer your question, by the way. Oh, I didn't. Tell, get, I didn't I'll get, I'll get tell you there. why oh, I do okay. this. Shall I t- Shall I, do you want me to go back there? I went off. I get sidetracked very easy.
0: Why do I? Why do I do this? Um, I mean, there are so many issues. I mean, you, you're you so many issues. Had a career. So in the my, UN.
1: my. Um, it's very kind of you to call it <laughs> Uh I. I, I guess that's just that's taken the breath out of me to think of my career described that way um I uh so I have a background in emergencies I have a background in the UN I have a, a master's degree from SOAS in development studies um it was much more focused on economic reconstruction so I I and I've you know, my family lived in West Africa and, uh, and I've traveled a great deal. I was in and out of Iraq, um, during sanctions and so on. Um, and, um, I knew all of the figures, uh, about maternal mortality and, uh, and the role of a woman in the family and the contribution of a, of a of a woman, we talk about it, we read about it, you know, we throw the numbers around, um, and and then I became a mother myself. I have three children, and uh, and then when I was uh, giving birth to my third child, um, I I suffered from this this crazy freak um, embolism, and. Eighty percent of women that have an amniotic fluid embolism die uh, of the twenty percent that survive, fifty percent of them uh, have some sort of um, cognitive damage because if obviously if blood gets cut off to the brain you end up um, with some some serious impacts, and uh, quite often the uh, the baby is lost too. Um, and for 24 hours, the, um, my doctors didn't know if I was going to live or die. And I was awake through all of this. Uh, I, you know, my husband and I, um, sat through the night, um, watching all of the monitors in the cardiac ICU. And, um, you know, had I died, I would have left behind my eight-year-old son and my six-year-old daughter and then this tiny little baby girl that I hadn't even met. Um, uh, and, um, and it was, it was, it was staggering to me because all of a sudden I, you know, why is it that with all of that, that background and experience and education and so on, I never got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had to be, I had to be struck by, by lightning myself in order to, to really, uh, confront what it would mean to die during childbirth, what it means to uh, you know maternal morbidity um, that sometimes surviving is the easy bit and that you can uh, whether it be um, um, postpartum depression, whether it be the the physical injury that can result and so on how debilitating all of these things are and the impact that they have on your children and on your family and then on your community. Um, and we talk about uh, women's contribution. We want, we want women at the, uh, at the negotiating table. We want women in, in the workplace. We want our girls to be at school and, and so on. Um, if women are not healthy, then none of those things will happen it's the it's the it's the the keystone of of everything that we do and if a woman's uh, or a girl's reproductive health services are not provided and not in a sort of a of a by the by um manner um then uh, then she's not going to go to school.
0: I have to imagine that your medical emergency happened in like a pretty fancy first world.
1: Oh, very hospital. fancy first world. Yep. Washington, D.C. Yeah.
0: And, and I mean, I can only, it's funny, your your story reminds me of a story that Asha Rose Magiro, the, the former deputy secretary general of the UN, told of her having a very similar scare. And um, I believe she's Malawian. Mm. Or, and, and she, um, you know, was I think foreign minister at the time and mm-hmm. had a very similar scare. And the same thing, you know, if this could happen to me, it could happen mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to anyone. Um, how did you then translate that, that experience into activism? How, how long did it take you to translate that experience into activism?
1: Uh, as soon as I was back on my feet again. Um, what did you do? I went to um, the um, the White Ribbon Alliance and uh, and said, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> Let me do something. And uh, that was six years ago now. Um,
0: so you had a background in emergency, background humanitarian in emergency. emergencies. Yes, you have a newfound interest and passion and, for maternal well, health. It's not,
1: it's not just to sort no, it was the, it was the, um, uh, it was the understanding um, it's not an interest it's not a passion i I get it mm-hmm. I understand it and um, and if there is a way that uh, that I can combine um, access convening um, substance uh, and uh, an empathy and use all of those things to uh, to talk about um, what girls and women need to make them uh to to survive and to um to thrive uh then that's what i'm going to do i mean just going back to uh reproductive health services the average amount of time to be a refugee is 20 years and so we talk about we talk about crisis and emergencies and and um sort of minimum services that are required it Twenty years in a in a girl's life is not an emergency. It is not not a requirement for minimum um, minimum service provisions. In twenty years, you can be born, go through puberty, and have a baby yourself. Uh, And um, uh, and we have to consider that if 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 you have a child and you are malnourished, the child will suffer. Um, If you have a child and you are not uh, educated. If, then the, the child will suffer um, and uh,
0: why sorry. I guess why do you think that until now the sort of cause or the focus on um, maternal and newborn health specifically in humanitarian emergencies has been somewhat overlooked?
1: I have no idea. It's Mm -hmm. baffling to me how, what baffles me as well is is how is it that the community has been so divided and so siloed, it's a horrible word, and very overused. Mm -hmm. Um, But why is it that we do not work more together? Why is it we insist on taking an individual? uh, we, We all talk about an individual human rights um, but what we actually do is we take that individual and we break them up into lots of different pieces. And we have agencies and NGOs and programs um, that deal with um, with different bits of, and pieces of of a person's needs. Uh, and so also what, for depending, example, you have? Well, let's see, your stomach would go to WFP. Uh, your vaccines would go to, to Gavi or the Global Fund. Um, your reproductive organs can go to UNFPA. Your children can go to UNICEF. You know, it's it's this sort of thing. And and um, I think that oh, and then of course, if you're living in in um, in a uh, an area where there's climate change, now you can go to the the Green Fund. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. we're, we're so um, we work in so many little bits and pieces when when um, when really. Uh, all of those those needs are very. You know, I, do you expect for every one of your needs to to have to go to to completely different people and fill out completely different forms and and be accountable well, to all sorts Kaiser of different things? You know, you know, so
0: actually, I do. So you
1: probably do exactly. <laughs> um. But
0: um, why is it, uh, or, or, or I should say. What then specifically are you trying to accomplish right now? Are, are you launched? I know the the, the new newborn uh, the the part was it the, the every woman every every child. Every, every woman well, every, every child, and every
1: child um, was a, a UN Secretary General initiative that was launched in 2010 um, and is underpinned by a technical document, the uh, Global Strategy for Women yes. and Children's Health. And the aim in 2010 was to um, make progress on the health MDGs that were doing very badly, uh, and. Those, um, right like of
0: all the mdgs of the ones all the related MDGs, to they were doing and, the and yes. uh, maternal health exactly. are the farthest from yes. completion of work
1: and from. um uh, and so to build on the success of uh, of the first 5 years of every woman every child it has been rebooted um the the new global strategy was launched alongside the uh, sdgs in september um and uh, for the first time so we battled to get uh settings Included uh, to understand the nuances of uh, of your need based on where you are, and so we uh, have included humanitarian and fragile settings into the global strategy, which means that um, that it is the responsibility of both the humanitarian community and the development community to uh, to work together um, for the health of women and children, and um, and for the first time, we will have the opportunity to do long-term planning uh, around um, RMNCH in humanitarian settings. All right, what, what is
0: the RMNCH?
1: Reproductive, maternal, newborn, and child health. Okay. And...
0: Um, what uh, would, like, an intervention look like? Um, what would be an ideal sort of RMNCH intervention in, say, you know, on, on the border of Syria and Turkey?
1: There's, there's very little newborn health that takes place in uh, in humanitarian work. Um, there is very little um, uh, reproductive health um, advocacy for adolescents in the humanitarian space. Um, safe childbirth, um, uh, prenatal, antenatal care. Uh, there are some very... Easy things that that uh, that operate in the in the development world that are equally applicable in uh, in the humanitarian world. Anything from wash your hands to um, uh, access to um, to quality medicines to stop you from bleeding out, um, early and exclusive breastfeeding, kangaroo mother care, all of these things, access to contraception. Mm-hmm you so know the, the it's a it's a bit of an aside but we we the the Zika um, virus if we tell women not to get pregnant um, it's rather difficult to stop women getting pregnant if they don't have access at the same time to contraceptive services um, sex happens whether it be in in emergencies in uh, in mosquito areas and uh, and if you if you uh, want to delay pregnancy you need to have access to um uh to the tools that Mm are going to
0: is i mean the humanitarian sphere i mean i don't have to tell you is is already way overstretched Mm -hmm. in terms of its ability to raise sufficient funds to uh sufficient to the needs on the ground is there a concern that if you start to introduce issues of reproductive health that some of the you know domestic politics that have so far obstructed the larger donors, the largest donors in the United States from contributing to agencies like the UN population fund Mm. might somehow undermine your larger fundraising effort. And, you know, because these unnecessarily and unfortunately get wrapped up into domestic politics about abortion oftentimes. Mm. Um, even though it's, it's neither here nor there, it it happens. And Mm. and the U S is not a major funder for reproductive health for a lot of these reasons. Is there a concern then that, um, that that what precious little humanitarian funds are available might become more depleted because fewer donors are willing to contribute because uh, you're now doing like politically sensitive
1: um, interventions. Does that mean we shouldn't do it if it's the right thing?
0: No, no, I'm I'm, I'm on your side. Trust me. No, but it's, you know, it's the, (laughs) it's
1: the, um, I think that there are so many um, so many improvements that we can, uh, we can do within the system. If you if you pull the the development and the humanitarian community closer together, you invest more in disaster risk reduction. You invest more in in multi hazard risk assessments. Invest more in women. Empower women, um, and uh, and we will see results. Uh, we understand in the private sector. That um, you have to you have to give a little bit to get a great deal out, we need to have the same thing in in the public sector. Uh, there is more than enough money out there in the world um, and and it 's a matter of um, of spending it um, efficiently and um, you know some of the the um, uh, in the in the u s there have been oversight committees recently looking into uh, U.S. spending in Afghanistan and in yes. Iraq, and the figures there are just staggering, staggering. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why is it that we can? Oh, here, I'm going to I'm going to give you a fact and figure. I'm going yeah, to race through investigator. my from my from my yellow pad mm-hmm. here of um, of scribbles. So, um, disaster risk reduction. 12 out of the 23 low-income countries received less than $10 million for disaster risk reduction over the last 20 years, while receiving $5.6 billion in disaster response. Come on. Uh, You know, it's um, time and time again, three-fourths of humanitarian funding in the last 10 years has gone into the same 20 countries. The six largest recipients have had humanitarian appeals for ten consecutive years. You know we can do better. We can do so much better, uh, and uh, and so that's that's what I and, and also if you look if you look at the agenda, uh, if the if it's about reducing maternal mortality if that is our target of reducing preventable maternal mortality reducing preventable under five deaths the majority of those are happening in fragile and and humanitarian settings and so that's what we have to focus on
0: thank you so much for your time thank you thank you this is great i really appreciate it thank, thank you. you so
1: much thank you thank you
0: and now here is justin hall tipping speaking about a very different set of issues
2: Nano energy is when you look at the fundamental properties of matter um, and shrink things down, things appear that don't normally appear. So, for example, if I, if I sort of look at devices here, you know, materials, they act a certain way. And as I shrink something down, it gets more and more energetic. So things take on properties that they don't normally have. So you would know, for example, something like aluminium or in America we would say aluminium, right, which would be a very stable matter in the normal size. If I shrink it down to the atomic scale it becomes combustible. If I take gold you know gold and I start to shrink gold down. Gold at the nanoscale instead of being a solid is a liquid. And by the way its colour changes from gold to red. Okay, so weird starts to appear. Um, and this is the thing that's really important to understand so when you think of our environment in which we operate the, the macro, the very very large the universe the universe is driven by force stars are driven by hydrogen 96% of everything that surrounds us you can't even see or measure dark energy and dark matter so talk about a perverse thing. Scientists spent its whole lifetime trying to explain the, the 4% that actually we see, but we're the sideshow. Mm-hmm. The implication of this is pretty stunning. It would be like if I had an apple and I threw it up, right? Mm-hmm. The apple would keep on going because of, there's these forces out there that are many times greater than gravity, which means gravity isn't the fundamental force in our neighborhood. Is this this
0: like a recent discovery? Relatively so. Post
2: Einstein. um, So you can go. Hubble actually is the guy who really starts to trigger on it. He he looks up at the night sky. And and pretty much in history, what we've been taught is space expands out from the Big Bang. And at some point, it's going to stop expanding stop because, because of gravity limit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. and gravity is going to start pulling it back and there's some Fridays some day from now that we all end up squished and the only question that some people say is well, when which is when's the Friday right and, uh, you know sometime in the last couple of decades some people actually set out to measure that and what they actually measure is, is a fairly stunning implication that actually if you look at the universe that we're in in space space actually not only is not slowing down it's expanding 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 mm-hmm which means there must be a force greater than gravity pushing it. If we were having this conversation a few ten thousands of years from now and went out after we finished it and looked up the night sky, the night sky will be black. You won't see stars because they will have all moved away because of these forces. Our technology today cannot even see or measure dark energy or dark matter, but we know it pervades everywhere, and we can't even figure it out. Now, imagine what happens when you understand an energy like that that's driving the universe, is can't be measurable, can't be seen, and yet it's the fundamental premise around everything we are. Our ability to find energy and use energy is its baby steps. You know, the sun produces more power in each moment of the day than we can use in a whole year, and our ability to translate that into something that we do is almost non-existent. The so how is,
0: how is nanotechnology changing that?
2: Well, it gives you the idea, and, and uh, this was another brilliant physicist, Richard Feynman in the 50s. What he really argues when he talks about this, he's got a great after-dinner speech. What he really argues is that at some point, we're going to be able to take the building blocks of the universe and rearrange them very much like Lego box. And in, his lunch, in his dinner speech, he's actually talking about, and one day we'll be able to take the whole Encyclopedia Britannica and write it on the head of a pin, now, anybody listening to the dinner speech at the time, well, remember, this is the 50s, right? Mm-hmm. So a computer maybe is, what, the size of this room. You know, they must have thought when listening to the speech, he was sort of absurdly imaginative, right? Now it's probably a
0: little smaller than the uh, head of a pin, right? Well, exactly. Well, but,
2: so, so what you're
0: saying, and my understanding, is that you can harness some of this energy to create energy, electricity, everything we use, uh, you know, in our day-to-day lives. But it seems that you're describing this far distant future, not sort of something that has implications for like the 20-year horizon of like the Paris climate talks.
2: It's a great, great um, uh, statement because, you know, really, it's actually here and now already Mm -hmm. in various parts of scientific discovery around labs in in the world. I'll give you an example. So the thing that powers the stars is hydrogen, Mm -hmm. right? The whole universe, every star that you see is driven by hydrogen. How many times have you last seen a hydrogen car trucking around the neighborhood? Okay?
0: I do believe President George W. Bush, right, made a said said something about hydrogen cars. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And many yeah, years ago. We're so far away, right? Yeah. And part of the reason is we don't have hydrogen around. we are going to go make it. And the way we make it today is by steam reformation. Okay, that's a fancy word for saying I take water in the presence of methane at about 700 degrees Celsius to 1,100 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. Anytime I'm saying words like that, at that kind of temperature, you know it's not a good thing, right? And the hydrogen we make is dirty hydrogen. We've got to go do something else. And if you look at one of these plants, mm-hmm. it looks like one of these big industrial plants, which is why you don't really have... Uh, a hydrogen car at the moment mm-hmm. not least from that part but from the second part the better way to take hydrogen is to take water split it into the hydrogen and oxygen mm-hmm. use that hydrogen because that's pure grade hydrogen mm-hmm. well here's a problem you actually need a catalyst to give enough oomph to make this thing split apart the catalyst that everybody says you've got to use in chemistry books is platinum you would never use carbon you know like carbon in a pencil mm-hmm. well A scientific team has recently taken commonal garden carbon, tweaked its structure at the nanoscale, and it's as reactive as platinum, which means the prospect of a fuel cell 30% cheaper without platinum is actually here and now. Now, the question is whether we're going to get behind being able to do this transformation from an oil-carbon-based fuel system to a non-carbon-based fuel system. But the technology, make no mistake about it, is here.
0: Is there enough funding from the private sector to fuel this uh, the, this
2: technology and this discovery, or do you need government support? I wish it- I could say yes, there is from the private sector, but the private sector is notoriously fickle, mm-hmm. right? because what we've actually been... T- doing over the last 20 years is progressively dismantling to a large degree so I don't want to say it's a blanket statement but to a large degree in corporations around the world we say R&D shouldn't actually be happening for 10, 20, 30 year horizons Mm -hmm. it actually needs to deliver next quarter's results and maybe a few quarters out but once you start talking about 2020, 2030 Shareholders, or in particular people who think of what shareholders want, get very, very nervous, and so we don't do it. So you don't see institutions like the Bell Labs, Xerox Park of old. Mm-hmm. Without a government saying, we have a 2030, 2050, or 2050 in the case of Dubai now, saying 75% of our energy is going to be totally renewable, mm-hmm. without that, we are destined, of COP21, to be in a very, very bad place. Very bad, because humans don't do well in a rising temperature environment we actually just don't and we're conveniently saying well we'll figure it out down the road and unless you make these innovations happen you're just cruising for a really bad time and so is part of
0: the reason you're here is to sort of make that appeal to governments to the government of Dubai to to make these kinds of investments yes long time horizons
2: until, the, until governments effectively say, here, here are the horizons in which we can operate, here are the ways you can be rewarded, private capital looks at, to a very high degree, this sector as uninvestable, it's just not institutional grade. Now that people have started to say, look, the horizons are shrinking, this is now within the time frame of what is investable, IP, intellectual property at universities, is now becoming a highly valuable investable base for funds, and that starts to change everything, and that's a really important shift. Dubai making the statement that it did, which is by 2050, the words count somewhat, but if they're just words without the action part, then everybody goes, it's just words. But what Dubai is actually doing is saying, no, we're going to deliver it. And once you start getting a government that starts saying, and we're going to deliver it, the others are going to have to take note. Because the next industrial revolution really is, is a revolution from a carbon-based economy to a non-carbon-based economy. So really, this is not a question about you know, fighting over resources. It's a question of you know, applying resourcefulness mm-hmm. to do this transition.
0: So how did you get into this line of work? How did you, how did you come to these the, be attracted to, to nanotechnology and its potential to transform uh, the, the energy economy?
2: I've had my career doing venture capital. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to the office one day and I read, it was about March 2000, 2000 I think it was, uh, I read about the B-15 iceberg that broke off Antarctica. And, it, and just it was it was one of those ones that you were reading in the paper and it said it's sort of a normal thing, right? And I remember thinking, time, that doesn't sound very normal to me. And when you actually looked at the size of the V15, it was like, you know, gigantic- it was just, 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 just gigantic. Yeah. And then 90 days later, the first sequencing of the human genome occurred. Mm-hmm. And it was like this lightning bolt went off in my head. I went, oh my gosh, you know, we're trying to solve the very, very large problem. And yet we've just figured out essentially the code of life. And it's very, very small. And if life is driven by something so small, maybe we should start looking in where the very small is, because things are going to be very, very different from virtually everything that we've been taught. And that started me on this journey. Or what, what I then realized, once I started to look at it, is what all these legends of science, mm-hmm. the Feynmans yeah. of the world had been predicting, one day, which now is now we would be able to get control over the building blocks of the universe and in that control what actually we gain control over is the essence of energy that's actually what we're talking about and once you get that then it's sort of open field and so i then decided you know if i was going to you know devote the rest of my life to something i could either just do the wall street investment Mm -hmm. thing or i should go do something that i could look at my kids and said actually you know what I believe this. I believe in my generation, and certainly yours, we can actually change the outcome, provided you go do. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I think I was felt pretty lonely. <laughs> and part of the reason by being here and talking about it, it's it's not as lonely anymore because there are a lot of other people that have sort of made that intellectual leap, which is, and it's here now too.
0: Well, now, are, are you investing in these to make return as a venture capital? It's like, have you, have you, you know? made a return on these investments yet over the last, like, 10, 15 years?
2: No, we're, we're actually on the verge of a couple of significant events. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always had the belief that if you, if you try and make people change habits just because it's a good thing to do, you'll get some of the people some of the time for a little bit of the time, mm-hmm. right? So I'll, I'll not drive my car for the next couple of weeks, and then it's really raining, and I'll go, oh, gee, you know, I really do need to drive my car, Right. You actually can't change a habit unless you make it cheaper, better, faster. If I make it cheaper, better, faster, I have to do so with a, with a business mindset. And if you drive it to have those three features, making money for shareholders, then you can change the world. If you do it just to do some good, it'll last for a little bit. And so, yes, I come at this from a rock-hard business point of view. I am determined that we build companies that are profitable, have long-term shareholder return. But that's only going to come if we make breakthroughs that are over the horizon that appear next Friday. Mm-hmm. And we've got a number of things that we have been working on the last 10 years that are right there. What's, what, can you describe one of them? Well, we have a water company in India that actually takes dirty water and turns it into drinkable water. That's already in the field in Bengal. It's a remarkable company, a remarkable scientist, Pradeep, out of IIT. On any scale you look at it, this is nanotechnology being employed to do not only social good, but actually go and change the world. We have a couple of companies in America, one of which is, for one of a better word, plastic television. Mm-hmm. Right? Now... What does that mean, just well, as it sounds? Think of it just as it sounds, right? Well. There's a reason why you'd want to think of doing this. This is something that we... And again, the scientists, when I say this, I take liberal use for a certain amount of the terms. say, oh, you can't say plastic. <laughs> but essentially what you're really saying is if you look at any of most homes now in the Western world, we have all these flat-screen TVs on our, on our wall. If you actually look at the power that these devices draw, it's like a refrigerator. Mm-hmm. And if you go into people's houses, you've got two or three of them. So really what you're saying is I'm going to go and proliferate these devices, stick them on the wall, they're my refrigerators, they're burning a lot more power. Actually, what I need to do is have a better material that gives me what I want, which is massive, big screen size, draw a fraction of the power. Then you start to change the proposition of how much power displays use. And it's a lot. And if you do cuts there, you start to be able to change how people think and what they use and what industry is demanded to go make.
0: Are there any indicators um, that we out, who are not as obviously close to these issues as you are, could look towards to see that we're moving in, in the right direction in terms of the kinds of investments that you're describing that would make a big difference? Like what? How do we know if, if, if we're, we're moving in the right
2: direction? I think you're starting to see it on a number of different levels. first part is you're getting... Um, from a, from a global basis, you're getting leadership, like His Royal Highness here, talking about what Dubai is going to do by 2050. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a remarkable step. And I think it was yesterday he was appointing the 22-year-old minister. You know, again, wow. Okay, these are really leading events. The second thing you're seeing is you're starting to see corporations start to realize, well, oh, I better have a, like Tesla, I better have a, a power pack that's different from everything else, mm-hmm. right? Right. And you start to string some of these dots, and what you realize is the inescapable conclusion that it's not just a few lone wolves out there saying, you know, this climate thing is actually now a real problem. You get 190-some countries finally signing a COP21. Um, You start to see corporations placing significant bets. You start to see global leaders being truly out there saying, actually, we're going to go do this. Mm -hmm. It's no longer in the what-if category anymore. It's actually within the one and two decades from here that actually becomes reality.
0: Alright, thank you all for listening. Presumably by the time you're listening to this, I am on a plane back to the United States from Dubai. It's been a great trip, really interesting. Check out UN Dispatch. We'll be writing some more posts about this conference and about some of the more intriguing things I've watched and seen and viewed. Also, follow me on Twitter. I've, I've been tweeting a lot from this conference, at Mark L. Goldberg. Alright, see you later. Bye.